This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Keep talking about a healthcare system really under stresses and strains in British Columbia. So many demands on the system. Are we keeping pace here? You just heard my interview there with Brian McKay. He's a Nanaimo man who was waiting for hip surgery. He went to Alberta, paid for private surgery at a clinic in Calgary there. Now, it's not just wait lists for surgeries that are a problem. We've also got wait lists for uh, cancer treatments, cancer screenings. Let's check in now with my guest, Dr. Kevin McLeod, Lionsgate Hospital, and I'm always grateful for his time. Kevin, thank you for coming on today. Mike, anytime. Happy to do it. Appreciate it a lot. And I follow you on social media. I encourage everyone to follow you on Twitter. And I'm taking a look at your recent tweet about the number of referrals that are coming into your office. And you said you basically have to triage these referrals now. What does that mean? Well, so, you know, so as a specialist, like the way that patients come to me are, are two different routes. They're either referred from another physician or, which is happening more and more and never used to happen, people are walking in and saying, I don't have a doctor, like, is there any way I can see you or, or you know, a family member is trying to get them in to see me or something else because they don't have a way to get referred. So, you know, every day there's a litany of new patients who are coming to the practice. A typical week there, you know, there might be between 60 and 80, sometimes as high as 100 new patients who are being referred. Now, that's not to a group of physicians, that's to me as an individual, um, so there's just such immense volume and, and the number of referrals, I've been doing this 18 years, the number of referrals has absolutely ballooned in large part because people um, can't access primary care or they don't have some other option for care. So then their medical conditions become more complicated. Um, a lot of those referrals might be from an emergency department, urgent care center, but it's, it's not really manageable that level. So, you know, as those come in, I've got a, a computer system where I can see them and I'll, I'll take time after hours to triage them, right? Like somebody who's having chest pain probably needs to be seen sooner than somebody who's had a little bit of a blood work abnormality going back years. Um, yeah. So, you know, you triage to figure out who you have to see first. The, the problem is the number of urgent things you can't really fit in, right? And, and then you start growing a waiting list. And, and as that waiting list grows and grows, you know, as you just talked to somebody waiting for a hip surgery, right? Like harm is being done as people are waiting. Um, you know, so we, we need a better way to manage such high volumes. I think one of the reasons that your tweet got so much attention on this, Kevin, was some of these referrals that you're talking about. That's some extraordinary numbers. There are like 80, 80 cases in a day in your office. And some of these are urgent cases, right? Can you talk about the, the, the nature of some of these cases and how urgent they are? Yeah, I mean, people people that can't access care in an expedited way, um, you know, they're pro- 
problem gets worse, right? So, you know, simple example that probably a lot of listeners can identify with. Somebody who gets heavy menstrual bleeding, right? Like they may drop their iron, they may drop their blood counts. Well, if we if we catch that early and we, we sort it out, you know, we don't have to have it lead to disability. If, if that person for a very straightforward problem can't access care, eventually it progresses to where they're anemic, um, sometimes to where they even need a transfusion, right? So that's just more complicated. It requires more resources then, hey, if we'd caught that early and, you know, dealt with the fibroid or something else, you know, I'll see people where they've, they've got ongoing bleeding and they can't get in for a surgery to have the fibroid dealt with, which, you know, maybe is a $1,000 surgery, whatever it is. So instead, we're transfusing them with blood and doing all these things that cost way more money to temporize it, right? So, so the, these waiting lists don't just have an impact on the patient. They, they really have an impact on the taxpayer as well, because as the, as the care becomes more complicated, it requires way more resorts. Yeah. Speaking to Dr. Kevin McLeod, what about um, suspected cancers? So this is one of the, the most disturbing or concerning ones to me. If someone presents and they've got concerns around something that could be cancer, then there's weights for screening. Tell me about cancer cases, cancer weights. Well, sometimes somebody will present with a symptom when they have cancer. Um, sometimes it's just something that we routinely find on a blood test. But, you know, classic example would be, hey, I'm, I'm older. I've lost my appetite. I'm losing weight. You know, I'm worried about that, right? So that person, reasonable chance they have a cancer there. Well, you know, they may be waiting to get in to see the doctor. Then they're waiting for tests. Um, even going in for anybody who has to go get blood work now, it's, it's challenging, right? Like booking an appointment, you're, you may be waiting a few weeks to get in or it takes half a day. It's very hard to do that if you're working, right? Um, you know, then you may be waiting for a scan, which can take can take, even if it's urgent, quite a bit of time. And, oh, hey, we see something. Now you got to wait for the biopsy. Then you got to wait yeah. now. It used to be a week. Now it's, it's sometimes four to six weeks to get that biopsy result back, right? And you, you can't start treating that cancer until you know exactly what kind of cancer it is. So the more you extend that and delay, um, you know, the, the worse the outcome. And, and there's not a way... We, we all say, well, we need more physicians in the system. It's not super simple to just bring more physicians into the system. You know, but if we had teams or we had additional people that sort of worked with that physician, you know, you do extend the capacity of, of what that physician can do. And it's not yeah. that you're downloading all the work, but, you know, one person can't do all of that work. Um, and it's, you know, it's not... Um, it's not straightforward to get somebody else into the system. I know my wife's listening right now. So, you know, she, she said the other day, you haven't been on Mike Smith for a long time. And um, so our son is going through medical school and, and mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're very much looking forward to him coming back one day. But, you know, that's, that's a 13, 14 year process to train somebody to go through medicine. We don't have 13, 14 years. You know, we, we have a crisis right now. We could actually expand and create teams right now. Yeah. I want to ask you about that because there's been a lot of talk about physician assistants or more practical nurses, and I know you've got some thoughts on that. Let me ask you first, though, do you find that with with these volumes of patients that you're seeing higher than ever, do you find you have to rush through patients? You're rushing through some of this? Absolutely. These consults? Absolutely. You know, I have to rush. And 
you, you know, it, and it, I don't like that. I actually like spending time with, with patients, but you know, it, it's this delicate balance because you, you have to go quickly and sometimes cut some corners in order to um, make sure somebody else doesn't fall through the cracks. And, you know, if, if I spend an hour with each patient, well, I, I mean, my waiting list would be five years. It wouldn't work, right? That person with cancer would never get seen, you know. So there, there's certain things you just have to do more quickly. I, I don't have as much of an ability to really build a connection with a patient because, you know, I know a waiting room is, is full, um, you know, and, and that doesn't feel good. Um, but there's a lot of, when I look at my day sheet today, right, I mean, there's, there's probably going to be 80 patients who come through my office. Is way too many. It should be less than half of that. But there's probably half of the people on that list today that I don't necessarily have to see. If I if they had a good family doc, yeah. the problem would be dealt with. If if I had a, a nurse or nurse practitioner here, the problem would be dealt with. Um, you know, and if, if that nurse practitioner or physician assistant said, you know, this person's a little bit more complicated. What do you think? Well, then let's talk about that individual patient. But but we we just we don't seem to have those those teams. Um, yeah, yeah, that would seem to be. I, I don't know why we we can't get our head around this. That we need some more of these these assistants to help with the workload. Speaking of Doctor Kevin McLeod, let me play a clip here for you, Kevin, for your thoughts. This is Lisa Stewart from the Associate Canadian Association of Physician Assistants. Let's have a listen. PAs could make a big difference. Um, helping kind of bridge the gaps that we have and adding um, more providers to the healthcare team. Okay, so that's the head of the Physician Assistants Association of Canada on an earlier show. Are these these physician assistants they're still not they're still not allowed in BC? Is that the case right now, Kevin? Well, I got to give credit to the the government here. They are um, bringing on physician assistants to help in emergency departments as a first okay. step, but, yeah. but that's that's a pretty small first step. Like we really need them in offices. So <clears throat> I'm not a surgeon, but good example: physician assistants will often in the United States and other countries be paired up with a surgeon. So you know that surgeon goes to replace a hip. You know, it's not just the orthopedic surgeon who's who's doing that. There's an assistant in the OR who's often a, a primary care physician. Well, we've pulled that primary care physician out of the community, being a family doc, to help in an operating room. A physician assistant can do that same role in the operating room, right, it, for less money. Um, you know, and so we've, we've got physician assistants in British Columbia who live here, who can't work here because there's not a regulatory licensing structure to get them working. Um, but, you know, as a taxpayer, that's a better option. I, I yeah. would rather have, you know, I'd rather have that physician freed up to do other work and, and have them in the operating room or helping, um, especially when there's there's some who are currently here doing other non-healthcare jobs, right? Yeah, and especially with the, the lack of, you can't just wave a magic wand and, and create all these doctors that we need. You talked briefly, you touched briefly on the lack of family doctors. When you take a look at the volume of people being referred to your office, do you think that's a, one of the missing pieces here? You, you mentioned that it never used to be this way. Is that because in prior years, people had a family doctor? I mean, I remember our family had a family doctor. He moved away, and we've never had one since. We can't find another one. And I think a lot of people are in that same same boat, right? Mike, it's, it's absolutely why, right? I mean, it's, yeah. you know, and, and for two reasons, you know, patient can't access the system any other way besides going to see a specialist, but also, hey, 
I couldn't get my problem addressed at an early stage. So now my problem is way worse. I have to see a specialist because it's worse, right? And, and, you know, so there's so many people who cannot access, um, you know, basic care right now. And and for people who don't need the system right now because they're healthy, I, I think they maybe have their heads in the sand a little bit. They don't see it, right, unless they're in it. Um, but it's, it's really difficult for patients. Yeah. Kevin, thank you for your thoughts on this today. Very grateful to you. Make any time. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Let's talk about that Airbnb crackdown in B.C. now. The Premier David Eby is saying that this is out of control. Short-term rentals have exploded in our province. And he says it's taking away rental homes from people who actually live here. So the government bringing down the hammer with new restrictions on Airbnb. Let's discuss it with my guest, Dan Fomano, the great columnist at the Vancouver Sun, who's written some great stuff on this. Hey, Dan, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. You bet. I appreciate it. So, Dan, this is really interesting, just the extent of how popular Airbnb had become, especially in Vancouver. And you've written some great stuff about some of the buildings in Vancouver that were had so many Airbnb units in them. They were practically like a running like a hotel, right? What did you find out there? Yeah, basically last week, uh, which it was coincidental with the timing of the province's new legislation being announced that's going to regulate short-term rentals. Uh, but last week we heard about a condo complex in downtown Vancouver. Um, there was a letter of complaint that was supposedly from a group of uh, residents who were unhappy about the sheer volume of guests that were coming to their complex through Airbnb. And we ended up speaking with some of the residents. We got a hold of um, some other people, uh, including the building manager. Um, and they confirmed that out of about 450 units in this condo complex, uh, about 150 of them have Airbnb licenses. So about a third yeah. of the overall units. And yeah. when I went down there for myself, it definitely looked like a lot of people coming and going just in a short span of time with a bunch of different groups of visitors pulling suitcases behind them, getting into taxis, coming out of taxis and coming and going. And I spoke with a number of them and they were out of town visitors staying in Airbnbs and they'd had a wonderful visit. They really enjoyed it. And Sure. Sure. Yeah. Why not? Why not? Of course you love a visit to Vancouver. But for people who are trying to find a, a place to rent, I can understand why the why the government's doing this to to a degree here. Now, hey, Dan, let's so let's talk about Thomas Park here. 
the, the Vancouver Realtor, uh, who yeah. is, uh, is bills him, uh, advertises himself as an Airbnb specialist. Now, let's listen to one of his videos here, uh, and I found out about this through your work in the Sun. Here he is, Thomas Park, Vancouver Realtor, about how much money he was making with his Airbnb. Let's listen. Picture this. I started Airbnb in my one-bedroom condo about seven years ago, and the revenue from that one property paid for the mortgage, property taxes, and the strata fees. It also covered the cost of the three-bedroom condo I was living in. I quickly realized that short-term rentals generate about two to three times more revenue than long-term rentals. Yeah, two to three times more revenue than a long-term rental. So why not? Why not rent it out on Airbnb? Does this uh, does this explain, Dan, why, why this had become so popular? Well, I think in short, yeah, the, the opportunity for revenue it explains why it's popular for hosts. Um, and then, of course, you know, what we've heard from guests, what I've heard from them myself, is that they like it. And it's important to note that Vancouver Hotel rooms are very, very expensive in Vancouver, even for sort of more budget, more modest kind of budget hotel options. Uh, hotel, There's a shortage of hotel rooms, and so they're very expensive. So a lot of visitors um, can get a nice accommodation in a desirable area for a fraction of the price of a hotel room by going through yeah. Airbnb. Now, just to note, in that clip that we heard from Thomas Park, this realtor who I spoke with last week, it is worth noting that what he describes in that video where he was he owned a one bedroom condo and he was renting it out while he lived in a different three bedroom condo. Uh, he was describing something that he said, according to him, he did that seven years ago, which is before Vancouver brought in its own short term rental regulations. Yeah. If he were to do if someone were to do that now, you can't do that. That's against the rules that the city of Vancouver introduced a few years ago, and it would be against the rules that uh, what the province is just announced last week for right. every municipality over 10,000 people. Basically, going forward, if you're going to rent a place out on Airbnb, it has to be your principal residence. So when I yeah. spoke with Thomas Park, he said that the way he uses Airbnb now is when he's traveling for work, he rents out his uh, his home um, to his people for a couple residence. weeks. His primary residence. So that yeah. is in compliance with the rules. And right. he said that you know he, he doesn't encourage anyone to break the rules, and he doesn't have any evidence that the rules are being broken. And so just, just to clarify that. So that is, there is a way to rent out a property on Airbnb that is in compliance with the rules, but the idea yeah. is it has to be your own principal residence so that you're not taking a home off the market that otherwise could be somebody's full-time home. You know, of course, great explanation. And of course, though, we've heard lots of complaints that maybe people were not following the rules or maybe there wasn't yes. tough enough enforcement in the city of Vancouver. And this is something that the province now has said, well, we've heard these complaints from municipalities. They've tried to get a handle on this Airbnb yep. stuff, and now we're going to help them. We're setting up our own enforcement team, and we'll yes. see if that makes a difference. So here's a here's another great part of this video here. So let's listen to Vancouver Realtor Thomas Park here. <laughs> I love this. We're going to play it a little longer here, but... Listen to him describe how the Strata Council at this one building where he was running an Airbnb, they had two members on the Strata Council wanted to bring in a short-term rental ban. It would have put him out of his Airbnb business. Now listen how he dealt with that. Let's listen. When I was on council, two of the members wanted to restrict Airbnbs, and I knew I had to take action. I didn't want to risk losing the revenue, and I wanted to protect my investment. Luckily, I've been a realtor for 19 years. I sold over 100 units in the complex, so I called all my investor clients and shared with them 
that how adding a rental restriction could negatively impact the value of their home. Each owner gave me their proxy, which is their vote, and I voted down the Airbnb restriction. Because I carried majority of the votes, I also replaced those two council members with like-minded owners, and now we control the Strata Council. <laughs> now we control the Strata Council. Oh, man. Dan, your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, it was... Um, <laughs> I thought it was an interesting... Uh, video and yeah. uh, it, it was certainly you know I did speak with some residents who currently live in that strata building and uh, are not happy about the way it's worked out now I also did speak with a member from the strata council uh, the current strata council because uh, and actually sorry I should clarify uh, when I asked Thomas Park if the building he was speaking about was this specific downtown condo because in the video in his video he appears to show a photo of this specific building, but he didn't yeah. name it in the video. So I asked him, he didn't say it wasn't, he said, maybe it was, but, but, you know, I do know that he, um, he advertised himself in the building saying that he sold more units in that complex than anybody else. And, yeah. um, anyway, and he also is currently on a strata council for one building, uh, on Abbott street downtown or one complex. And he's has been in, uh, on the strata council for a different building near there. So, Anyway, but the, the building that I visited where there is a high volume of Airbnb visitors, um, I did speak with someone from the Strata Council there who said they have heard residents' concerns. It wasn't really a huge issue a year or two years ago, but coming out of the pandemic this past summer, they said that it was just, it was clear that there was a rush, a huge surge of Airbnb visitors. And so they have heard residents' concerns and they are trying to grapple with it now. You know, I, yeah, I spoke with this uh, fellow on the current Strata Council and they they were saying that they are trying to address some of these issues so they're looking at bringing in maybe some limitations or regulations um you know they are obviously in a strata with 450 people or 450 different strata units i'm sure it's a challenge trying to come up with something that everybody's happy with i mean i'm yeah. sure a lot of people who've lived in stratas can appreciate often there's challenges trying to come to grips with something Good. that everyone can live with did people, it's a really interesting example, and I think it's kind of a, a prime example of why the government said they felt they had to take action. When you've got an, uh, a condo tower that is op operating to a great degree like a, like a hotel, the government is saying, we want to put, her, put a stop to this. When you spoke to people there, Dan, did any of them... Were they? Did they complain about the Airbnbs? Did they say people were making noise, like people were partying in these units? Or I mean, so what if someone is is walking in and out with a suitcase every day? Is it that big a deal? Or did people were people really upset about it? Some people were upset. Now, I mean, I couldn't uh, tell you exactly how many people out of the four hundred and fifty units, how many people were upset. But certainly, some yeah. people were upset to varying degrees, and the folks who I spoke with. Um, but now, you know, conversely. Um, Thomas Park also told me that because there's a lot of stratas in Vancouver outright ban Airbnb or short-term rentals in their strata yeah. bylaws, because they are allowed to do that. Um, but typically passing a bylaw like that requires a three quarters vote. So, um, and what Thomas Park was telling me was that in his experience as a realtor, uh, strata units that do allow short-term rentals are often more valuable. They'll sell for significantly more than a comparable unit 
in a strata that bans short-term rentals. And sure. that's because of the opportunity for, for revenue. Now, again, he's not talking about doing it full-time and operating as a hotel room full-time because that would be against the rules. He's saying that the people he knows of um, are people who travel and then when they're away and not in their residence, that's when they rent out their primary residence. Now, I have also spoken with people um, who have suggested that they're a bit skeptical that everybody in Vancouver, all of these various Airbnb units listed, that all of them are someone's principal residence and they're only renting them out when they're out of town. Yeah. Um, but I guess the <laughs> thing is, you and I sitting here, we we don't immediately have any way of really knowing the answer to that. And that is where they're hoping the province, uh, you know, if people are required to register with the province and the yeah. province has more information, more of an ability to enforce these kind of rules. So that's what some people are suggesting, the province having this rule. Instead of it leaving it up to the municipalities, um, it might it might uh, have more of an effect. Yeah. Well, that's certainly what uh, I guess the province is hoping, that uh, with them bringing the hammer down, it's going to make a big difference here. Dan, great work on this story. Thank you for coming on today. Great. Thanks, Mike. the government's crackdown on Airbnb now. The major components here now, Airbnb operators would only be allowed to rent out their own home, their primary residence, or an adjoining suite, like a basement suite or a laneway home. That's it. So this would prevent real estate investors from buying up multiple condos and operating them like hotel rooms. Now, this would apply... In B.C. cities, over 10,000 people in population. Some resort communities like ski resorts would also be exempted. Why did the government do this? They want to free up these short-term rentals for people to actually live in, permanent residents. Let's listen to the Premier here, David Eby. Without question, uh, in British Columbia, short-term rentals have gotten out of control. Uh, we have a situation uh, in our province where uh, the top 10% of hosts account for 50% of the income for short-term rental operators. All right, let's discuss now with my guests. The opposition now proposing some changes to this. Corinne Kirkpatrick is my guest, BC United MLA, West Vancouver Capilano. Corinne, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, it's nice to talk to you about this issue again. There's a lot of interest in this. Tell me about some of the changes you would like to see in this crackdown here. Well, we're really trying to make this a balanced approach so we can understand the impact that it's going to have in the community. Um, and we are certainly in favor of anything that is going to help to actually secure more long-term rentals. So we're looking at this as how can we help and support to make this actually better legislation. Uh, we've heard from a lot of people, a lot of industries since there was a proposal, and there are a number of things that we need to take into consideration. And just as an example, the ability of nurses, doctors, construction workers uh, who serve communities, um, who travel to various communities, and they do that for 30 days or less. So what is this going to do uh, to them and how is that going to impact them as, as one uh, one example. Yeah, and for so that gets into the definition of what exactly is a short-term rental. How does the government define it right now in this legislation they've brought in? Uh, well, it's looking at anything that is going to be 90 days or less, which right. uh, makes it very problematic for, for those that are, are uh, traveling for shorter periods of time. 
Um, and it's anything now that is not going to be in your principal residence. So if it is uh, something that uh, someone, even if they don't rent in their own principal residence, if it is somewhere else, uh, it is caught under this uh, uh, short-term rental as well. So it, it's defined as anything, um, 90 days or less that is not in your residence. Right. So you propose to to redefine it as thir- 30 days or less, correct? Yeah, 30 30 days or less, and that is in line with um, the kind of restrictions that we see in other communities. Uh, That does provide some flexibility for those people who do need to travel for very legitimate reasons. Uh, We're looking at exempting medical travel. Uh, So if uh, if you have cancer treatments and you've got to come to Vancouver, uh, if you want to have your family support while you're uh, while you're having medical treatments, uh, well, that's important. And certainly staying in an expensive hotel for a period of time uh, is probably not an option in that scenario. Right. Okay. let's talk a little bit about the requirement there that you touched on that you you would only be allowed to rent out a short term rental if it's your your principal residence. And we heard the the government say, well, that could also include a a basement suite in your home or a laneway home on your property. You think that goes too far, right? People, tell me what you would like to see instead. Well, I'll clarify that as well. When I say principal residence, it it can be on the property, but it does need to be your residential property. So it's not in your principal residence. Um, uh, Well, as the Premier, you just heard him say, the top 10% are those who are institutional investors, and they're running multiple units as a business. But there are 90% that are not caught there. They are uh, families who are, you know, they, they may own one other um, property, and this is to supplement retirement income. Uh, I'll give you an example of a woman I heard from who lives here in Victoria. Uh, she rents her current location. Um, she hasn't been able to break into the housing market, so she saved up. She bought in one of the non-conforming buildings, uh, Juliet, uh, in downtown Victoria, which was actually built for this very purpose, uh, and she um, she uses that as her uh, partial income to support her. Uh, and uh, you know she's not a big uh, land baron. She hasn't bought up a whole number of units. This is just one single unit while she remains a renter in her own principal residence. Right. So you're you're suggesting that the government should allow that, right? So you'd be allowed to do a short-term rental in your your principal residence where you live and one other property. So you'd you'd be allowed to have one short-term rental investment property kind of on the side separate from your principal residence. Is that right? That's that's right. And if you okay. look at the majority of pe- the majority of people who are actually renting out uh the second residence, it's a, a family cottage, it's different community and it is not something which will ultimately be re- be returned to rental stock or it will not be something that will ever be used as long-term rental uh, so if that is the intention of this uh, legislation um, it, it is uh, catching uh, those properties that it's certainly not going to have that that long-term uh, usage okay is there any what about the, I can already hear people criticizing this and saying, well, hang on a second, we're in a housing crisis here. We need to free up as many of these homes as possible for people to actually rent long term and live in, live in them, people who actually live here permanently. And if you start allowing these sort of exemptions and loopholes, like, well, you can have one Airbnb, 
Airbnb property on the side that's not your principal residence. Well, that's one more home that could potentially be a long-term rental for someone to live in, isn't it? Uh, there are a lot of properties, um, uh, you know, like the Juliet and various ones uh, in different communities that are 200 square feet, 250 square feet, and they were purpose-built for the reason uh, that they would actually additional, they would have additional hospitality space for them. So these are not the things that we're going after. Um, what uh, what government needs to do is build more housing. We're not saying this is an either or. We know that there needs to be more housing, and we want to support something that's going to return housing stock to the market. But this is a blanket in its application, and it is impacting individual people who have uh, legitimately worked hard, and this supplements their income, and they're not large investors. These are the mum and dads that uh, that have got something that's very legitimate, and it's if we're trying to, to catch those larger investors who have multiple units, I think that's really where we need to focus. Okay. Very interesting. We're, we're going to watch this closely and see if the government allows these, uh, these amendments that you've proposed. Karen, thank you for coming on. Thanks for your time, Mike. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.